Billy Bang. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to a film that alpacas a punch. It is, of course, Rich Ben loved that. Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space. I'm spelling it C O L O U R. If yeah, you want to spell it C-O-L-O-R, that's entirely up to you. But hey, we're British. We're adding the extra U. I think Fuck the, the you. Original, the original story was spelt with a U, I think. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. What the hell's going on? Americans anyway, getting it wrong. Bloody Americans. Anyway, uh, a big hello to all our American listeners. Uh, welcome. <laughs> you are all welcome here. Anyway, Color Out of Space. It is, of course, Richard Stanley's adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft story and it is freaky deaky to the max and it is Nick Cage Gonson has turned up to 111 and uh, we're going to be talking about the film on the other side of this because I'm joined for this very special podcast by our geek queen Helen O'Hara Hello I'm joined by Ben Travis Hello and I'm joined by Alex Godfrey Good day to you Good day to you sir and uh, Alex here was lucky enough to interview Richard Stanley for It Is He about this very, very movie when he came into the pod booth just the other day. Sat right where you are now, Helen. Oh. He drank a flat white with two sugars. Wow. Which you had to go and get for him. I know, I had to go to the cafe in Hero Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not trust my coffee-making ability. Why not go across the road to the nice place? It was place? closed. Oh, uh, okay. I know. Sorry, Richard. It was 5.30 on a Friday. It was oh, closed. Yeah. Apparently their water source had been contaminated with some kind of weird purple... <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, can I have a flat purple, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, before we get into the film and talk about this uh, absolute glorious mindfuck of a movie, uh, let's hear what Richard Stanley, who, of course, this is essentially his first movie since Hardware back in 1980. Dust is Devil. Is he technically... Dust Devil? 96. 92. 92. Something happened in 96. That was Donald Duck Moreau, wasn't Moreau, it? Moreau, he was kicked off. Moreau, kicked off. So he hasn't made a film since Dust Devil. Yeah. Right. None of the footage in Dr. Moreau was him. Correct. And he's not officially credited with that movie. None right? of the script, none of the footage. Because yeah. he's, he's already on set for like three weeks or something. like Three days. He shot for three days. Yeah. Three days. There you go. I'm fully prepared. Uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely up to speed. And his name is Stanley Richards. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Stanley Richards talking to Alex Godfrey. Do please enjoy. Richard Stanley, director of Color Out of Space. Welcome to Empire's Color Out of Space spoiler special. We're going to get our hands dirty, getting into quite a lot of the film's gory details. And there are a lot of gory details in this film. Well, naturally, it is a horror movie. Yeah. And um, despite everything else, I do feel a commitment to bring a certain amount of gore, slime, and, and darkness to my work. Where does that come from? I think I was raised that way. Yeah. Um, so I think my um, crazy mother um, made certain that from an early age she um, raised me and trained me to um, to be a genre person and to ultimately be a horror movie maker. Do you think she knew what she was doing there? Um, possibly. I, I, she took me to see um, King Kong when I was four years old. I saw the first Christopher Lee Dracula also about six months after that, became a Hammer horror movie fan and have been, haven't looked back since. Yeah, good. Well, we're better off for it. So let's get into the. So the the first real shocker in this film, um, the first bit of gore. Not that it's a gore fest, but there are smatterings. Um, is Teresa, the mother, cutting off her fingers while slicing up some food? Um, that's not very nice, Richard. 
it's a small bit of business. It was just there to um, let people know that that bad things are going to come. And it's a fun scene for me because you can see exactly where it's going, and it's so heavily telescoped in advance that you know, you're just kind of waiting for it to happen, which um, somehow um, gives it a sickening sense of inevitability, which makes it even worse. Yeah. But, <laughs> This would you call this a monster movie? I mean, it's a monster movie of sorts, but it's a bit more um, left field than one might imagine when hearing that phrase. I guess. Yeah, it's, it certainly is a monster movie, but the principal monsters are almost off screen from the point of view that we can't really see the color, mm. the um, thing that lives in the well. Or it really is a, some kind of ultra-dimensional creature that um, is getting gradually stronger off the rest of the family yeah. and um, does kick, uh, tick all the, the monster movie boxes. And I was very happy to be finally working in, a, um, in, a, in, a, in an American science fiction movie. I wanted to um, tip my hat to a bunch of different um, 1950s um, sci-fi epics. I think any movie where a, a glowing meteorite strikes a, a small farm and someone comes out and pokes the meteorite for stickers in a, <laughs> a certain genre. Uh, um, it was a, a huge amount of fun um, just to be able to go into such um, archetypal material and try and um, spruce it up for the 21st century. Yeah, so, I mean, Lovecraft is, and when was this story written in? The 1920s something? Yeah, 1926 was the original. So it's um, the original stories have been imitated a lot. Uh, and I'd like to imagine that it's left its fingerprints on a huge number of um, 1950s sci-fi movies. Um, yeah. Probably the blob included, and um, I think even um, John Carpenter's The Thing owes a big debt to yeah. um, Lovecraft. And so what were your first thoughts in terms of bringing this up to date and making it and incorporating it into the modern world, so to speak? Well, the main concept was to try to take um, Lovecraft's old ones, his um, ultra-dimensional um, alien deities, mm. um, make them um, terrifying and implacable again. Yeah. Um, I've got a plush Cthulhu I sleep with back home in my bed, and right. um, I was keen that, um, it, it, that the, the, the creature of the film sh shouldn't be cute or um, anything that we could possibly deal with in, in any way at all. I would like the um, to give the old ones back some of their, their maddening potential to simply um, roll right over us and annihilate us without even being aware of our presence. Right, <laughs> okay. Well, also playing a big role in this film are um, a small family of alpacas. Are they a family? Um, pretty much. They were a working group of alpacas who um, we managed to get out of Portugal. They normally do weddings and bar mitzvahs and whatever it is <laughs> alpacas do. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, they were off to a big wedding just after we'd finished shooting them. Very, very sweet animals to work with. Are they? Um, yeah, the hardest thing to do is to try and get them to look at all intimidated or concerned because they're such um, calm, kind of docile creatures mm. that no matter what we did, they um, failed to really react. Well, you do quite a lot. I mean, alpacas are not technically monsters, but you, you see to that pretty quickly. Yeah, there's one um, big um, John Carpenter homage, and I thought if we're going to go there, we might as well do it with alpacas. 
<laughs> so also, I didn't really want to. Um, if it was go- if we were going to be down on the farm, I didn't want there to be um, cows or pigs or chickens. It felt like we wanted to reinvent it somewhat. And if it hadn't been alpacas, it might have been angora goats or mm. maybe ostriches, because I'm very used to this pattern with, um, particularly with British expats, but with city people when they go to the countryside of buying an old farmhouse and then mm. having some kind of completely gonzo plan to make money by um, rearing ostriches or um, some kind of um, making their own wine or one thing or another. So it's important for me that Nathan and the guard, the family, had their um, their, their, their lunatic project, their, their dream that they were trying to achieve. And um, alpacas and making alpaca sweaters seemed to um, fit the bill. Well, Nathan, um, played by Nick Cage, uh, milks the alpacas. Um, was he milking them? Was Nick Cage milking alpacas or is this movie magic? It was movie magic, um, but in, tr- in truth, you can milk alpacas. Right. And alpacas are edible. They taste like a cross between chicken and venison. People um, do eat alpacas. They're do they? Apparently tasty. They do the. Um, they do make um, alpaca cheese from them as well. Okay. Um, Good to know. <laughs> yeah, in the film, I wanted to include the alpaca milking scene as one of um, Colors' many um, disturbing um, little. Um, racial or socio-political digs because um, Nathan seems to be a Trump supporter through of looking at the subtext and um, the scene where he tries to force Elliot to drink the alpaca milk is vaguely disturbing. Uh, vaguely, <laughs> quite disturbing. There's a, a, a look of beautiful, almost ecstasy on Nicolas Cage's face when he, when he when when his character does drink that milk. Yeah, I guess he's, the man has his dream, but it's uh, <laughs> it's certainly very sad for Nathan what he has to go through with the alpacas. Well, yes, there is. Um, so this is the spoiler special. So we're going to spoil. This is for people who've who've seen the film. Um, there is a let's just say there's a track on this on Colin Stetson's fantastic score called Alpacalypse, which I think speaks volumes about what this film is. Not only just that moment, but um, was that. Did any of this come from the original story or was was this stuff your own invention? Um, the alpacas I brought to it. Um, in the original story, it infects all of the farm animals. Okay. The cows and the pigs gradually fall apart. But I was just um, keen to um, change it up and to um, yeah, into something we don't see um, so often on screen. Um, unfortunately, because of the... Um, limitations the budget it meant that um, I had to pretty much strip the alpacas of their fur for when they're, they're, they're transformed Transformed fur is still a problem even after all these years it's always been tricky for people to deal with, with stop motion animation and VFX it's also equally tricky dealing with hair so um one of the reasons the alpacas um, get that gloopy look was really also a, a budgetary consideration. I think I might have used ostriches in a different set of circumstances, but right. ostriches kick and are much more dangerous to um, right. have around the crew. <laughs> Practical concerns. Um, so Tommy Chong plays a great shamanic, would you say shamanic sort of stoner character in this film? Is he a shaman? Yeah, a little. Uh, and he's closely based on a, on a bunch of um, real-life friends that have basically um, been living around me over the last 20 years in the Pyrenees. Yeah. Any in particular? 
Yeah, there was a um, an old um, hippie recluse at the top end of the river where I live, mm. who back in the 1990s started making audio analog recordings of what he believed were aliens moving around underneath the um, the floor of his house. Right. Which he eventually played on French national television, which eventually led to a fully blown mass hysteria outbreak in um, 2012, where the French government had to seal off the entire area, um, which right. um, it suddenly finds its way back into the movie. This business of the um, the analog recordings of the, mm. the things under um, the Tommy Chong character's floor. Is this is this the guy I've read about who enacted some sort of ritual which helped this film to come into play? Yeah, unfortunately, this was um, little Urani who was a bush shaman guy in real life. Um, mm. He was a, a former um, electrician from Bordeaux who had dropped out completely and was living off the grid who managed to get his Wi-Fi and everything from um, solar panels. Um, yeah. He'd been um, living rough for around 30 years. In the course of it all, he'd latched onto a French-language copy of the Necronomicon, which is a, a hoax book of um, sorcery based on Lovecraft's work. But no one told him it was a hoax. And, um, about um, two years ago, Yurani did a ritual to one of Lovecraft's deities, to Yogg-Sothoth, um, to um, bring Lovecraft's work to the screen. Right. Um, he didn't specify just one movie. Um, I think he kept the door open for um, more than one movie. Okay. And um, this entire ritual we have on um, on tape, a friend of mine um, filmed the entire thing, so I've got it all word verbatim. We're all um, giggling and trying to keep a straight face and about halfway through a storm breaks out and it um, becomes quite intense and then unfortunately um, little Urani um, died of liver failure just before the movie started mm. so I, I sometimes wonder if his life wasn't the price that the, the fictional deity demanded to um, to bring the project over into existence so um, in the movie he's played by um, Tommy Chung who was the closest I could get to him in real life It's a fine tribute Let's talk. We, we talked a little bit about Nathan, who, who Nick, Nicolas Cage plays. Um, he, I guess, in the first half of the film, he's relatively sane by most people's standards. I mean, he's still Nicolas Cage, but um, he's rel- relatively domesticated. Things seem to be going okay, and then um, he's sort of as as things start infecting the home and the environment, he sort of flips into maybe a bit of Jack Torrance territory. Yeah, I was keen for it not to go full Jack Torrance because um, mm. I always found that um, certainly in the uh, the Kubrick movie that Jack wasn't very sympathetic. Yeah, um, I'm, I've always been slightly on Stephen King's side there by finding Jack much more sympathetic in the book than he was in the in the movie. So I felt yeah. that um, with Nathan we had to try to continue to care for Nathan um, even after he became a danger to um, to his children to the um, the people around him. I still wanted us to um, be. Um, be concerned for him. And I, I very much like um, spoiler alert the um, the daughter's reaction to Nick when he's when, when Nick's shot at the movie that she's utterly horrified that her dad's killed. And, yeah. Um, uh, I, I didn't I didn't want to to break those emotional ties between the characters. Yeah. So, and part part of the joy of it was um, trying to calibrate Nick's Gonzo performance so that it was something that that blossomed throughout the movie like a, one of those crazy 
crazy paper flowers you drop into water that keeps opening out into something horrible and twisted as the the film goes along. So we were, it was pretty much like giving almost a, a number from one to ten to the different um, levels of emotion, allowing Nick to slowly go up to number eight, number nine in the second half, and um, yeah, get, uh, and getting into those real classic cage rage moments. I mean, yeah. we knew that um, dealing with alpacas and things like the tomato scene, that obviously um, some of these um, sections are destined to end up floating around in the, the lower recesses of, of YouTube after the movie's done. Yeah. <laughs> well, he has some amazing moments. I mean, I think my favorite line of his is when he appears and says, I'm not going to even attempt to do a Nic- Nicolas Cage impression, but when he says, the car isn't happening it's not happening yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that scripted I, I, I think it was but Nick just does it so well yeah <laughs> what um I, I read somewhere that he I think you said he was channeling his father on the set is that right yeah, there's some aspects of um, his dad, of um, August Capala. Um, there's some um, with Teresa. There's some aspects of my mum as well. So, okay, um, the, the the set was somewhat haunted by, um, I guess, mum and dad. Mm. Um, if Nick hadn't already made a movie called Mum and Dad before this one got made, I would have been very tempted to put a an <laughs> end a, a, an end credit saying for Mum and Dad on the end of it, just to say thanks to the people who um, turned us into the the, the people we've ended up becoming. (laughs) (laughs) Augie was also the basis for um, Vampire's Kiss. Oh, I see. Um, And um, that was... um so some of the vampire ki- vampires kiss um, physical acting comes back into it, particularly whenever he's using his hand and yeah, um, right. a lot of that stuff um, coming from his dad. Let's talk about some of the more overtly monstrous elements or monsters that are in this film. I mean, I think the first one you see, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, might be the winged insectoid sort of thing that flies out of the well. Was that, a, was that your own design and invention, that creature? Well, uh, that came in largely because Nick was very determined there should be a, um, a hot pink mantis in the yeah. movie. Uh, as he decided not to take no for an answer, I figured, okay, we're going to write this thing in there, and I'm going to give it some kind of arc. Uh, if it's going to be there, it's going to have to be there at least three times in the movie. It's going to need to actually um, have a beginning and a middle and an end like anything else. So um, yeah, wove that in. And I think it's also... Um, it, it, it comes at a point in the movie where um, people are wondering how long we're going to be playing um, fast and loose with hiding the monster. Yeah. Um, we haven't really shown very much at that point, and it made sense to fi- finally drag something out into full daylight and drop the other shoe and say, yes, there are going to be mutations in this film. Yeah. Well, talking of mutations, I mean, at one point quite late in the day, the, uh, the mother and the son become, become one as it were. Um, what, uh, what were you going for there? Because it really is quite disgusting. Well, I guess that's always been um, my greatest nightmare would be that um, my mother would find some way of reassimilating me or um, having brought me into the world would find some way of taking me out of it again. <laughs> Which, um, I, I think there's a point when you're um, around 12 or 13 where you start to suspect that unless you can get as far away from home as possible that you'll be somehow reassimilated into the family unit like some kind of black hole which is exerting a, 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 such a strong pull 
not unless one can establish one's own sense of identity and get the hell away from home. It's it's a real yeah. It certainly was a real fear for me as a um, as a thirteen year old. So I wanted to yeah tap tap into that. Yeah. And um, I'm also naturally an arachnophobe. Right. Uh, it occurred to me that if I fused the um the kid and the mum, I'd end up with this um this eight legged beast and the mm. idea of having this um eight legged um mutant spider mum up in the attic that wants to um, eat her own children and reassimilate them all back into her body was, um, I guess, one of the better ideas to have come to the fore of this. It's an incredible thing. And at one point, would I be right in saying that there was some stop motion involved? It looks like it. A little, and we also had a um, an actual... Um, like um, physical um, ballet artist um, person inside that thing. We brought an unfortunate right. lady over to try and um, make that thing move and, uh, and, and walk on set. It's, um, I mean, th- this leads up to the sort of last 20, 25 minutes of the film, which is genuinely visceral. Um, you don't see that sort of, those sort of altered states going on in cinema very often. Uh, what it's it goes full psychedelic. Were you on a mission there to sort of push that as far as you could? Totally, and um, this reflects um, the original text. Yeah, um, as with a lot of um, Lovecraft's material, um, color out of space tilts over into um, fully blown dementia in the um, the last many pages, where you could imagine the the text becoming increasingly italicized as one's um, one's reading, and certainly the um, some of the utterly bonkers um, descriptions within the Lovecraft story, just of the way the trees are moving with a, a studied malevolence and um, mm. with this evil auric fire burning around everything was uh, a huge challenge to um, to try and um, not only um, channel on screen but also create that sense of um, giddy escalation that one's being dragged as if into a black hole straight into the um, into the more of this chaos <laughs> it, it's quite painful sound wise as well in a, in, a, in a kind of soothing way I mean the score and the sound design do a lot of work to to make it physically unsettling I think Good, yeah. Now we pushed it very far into ultrasound and infrasound, into mm. um, into basically things which are slightly outside of the um, the normal um, human auditory range, and that's also um, ha- happening in conjunction with the visuals, which are pushing into. Um, Infrared and, and ultraviolet, which are the uh, the yeah the outer limits of the human um, visual perspective uh, of spectrum. Yeah. Back in the eighties, they used to call this some um, sense around. Okay. Um, really, um, sense around was like ultrasound, and so they used it in earthquake at the Battle of Midway and stuff, just to go to try and get your diaphragm and give you the sensation the seats were trembling. Yeah. So um, we were we were basically stealing a few ideas from from that that toolbox. It's extremely effective. And then I get by the time the whole film is done, the whole family is dead, um, which is Lovecraft in a nutshell. Was there any pressure for that not to happen? Were you completely <clears throat> supported? Well, I think that was one of the reasons the film took so long to get funded. I know um, Roberto Rodriguez says if the dog dies, then it's a B-movie. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, the principal um, 
framework we have for writing screenplays these days is called Save the Cat. Yeah. And in this movie, the cat is not saved. Spoiler alert, the dog dies, um, the alpacas <laughs> die, the entire family dies. So, um, And there was no, no, nothing that happens with it. It could be construed as a positive learning arc or um, really a, 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 a positive learning experience for any of the family yeah. who are set up as if they're going, they're going they might be um, in like a, um, a late 70s, early 80s Spielberg movie like um, Poltergeist or something. But unfortunately, times have changed for the God and the family and there's, yeah. things just don't work out positively for them. And this all amounts to uh, an incredible cinematic experience. I know you've been in Los Angeles where the film opened to, to great acclaim. Um, people, I take it, have been enjoying themselves watching the film over there. Yeah, um, I think it's something people aren't really used to. Um, that, um, there hasn't been a decent um, psychedelic movie for um, too many moons. Mm. Uh, there's quite a lot of mad science that's been applied to colour. Yeah. It, it, it isn't just a matter of throwing anything at the screen and seeing if it sticks. We um, deliberately tried to uh, go at the, um, the, uh, the outer limits of, um, of human perception and how we can um, try and imply that on screen and get that sensation that once reality is really... Um, being torn apart at the um, yeah. at the seams, and I, I think it does communicate some of that that wooziness about space time to the to the audience. I know you're writing a follow up. Are you hoping to push things even further with that one, or is it a different proposition? Um, no, totally. I, the the great thing about color is it's opened the door on um, two further installments. Yeah. So um, we're currently um, working on a second movie based on um, the Dunwich Horror. One right. of Lovecraft's other classics, yeah, which will be t t which takes place about um, seven years after the events in um, Color Out of Space and in the the same um, um, post-Trump period um, backwards Arkham County. Yeah, uh, now we've introduced some of the problems in the first one. I think it's uh, it's going to move quite a bit faster. And um, the second movie gives me the chance to um, get into the lore of the mythos a lot more so that we'll um, see the Necronomicon yeah. and um, also meet some of the um, the people who are um, who have been worshipping these deities. Okay, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see it. I love this film. I've seen it twice. Uh, I'm going to see it again soon. And uh, I'm just really glad to have you back making films again and, and doing them as well as you've done this one. Uh, it's a pleasure, sir. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for coming in. All right. That was Richard Stanley. Um, I was here for a little bit of his non-spoiler special interview. He's a he's a card. He's amazing. I, I just love him. Everything he says is either interesting or funny, usually both. You don't even... You can just feed him odd words and he'll come up with some insane anecdote. He's an yeah. amazing value. Great voice as well. Yeah. Really I love good. how uh, if you listen to his interview on the regular podcast, he basically... Um, claims that uh, what this film the, the responsibility for this film primarily comes from a Ouija board he bought from Toys R Us <laughs> yeah a short film he made before this which led right. to this yeah he and he he's being sincere a glow yeah. in the dark a glow Ouija in board. the dark Ouija board from Toys R Us oh yeah. lovely <laughs> who spelt out the plot of the short film that led to this one I mean why not <laughs> sure <laughs> sounds legit also he uh, smokes weed with his cat yeah, and uh, I guess in this Again, movie that's <laughs> that's reflected as well because the character Benny, would, I guess, would the, should the cat not smoke catnip? I mean, I'm not sure the cat's smoking anything. Oh, okay. In fairness, well, so. second hand though, I mean, that yeah. cat is stoned because obviously <laughs> this wasn't a one-off. He went outside <laughs> for a joint with his cat, 
this must happen regularly. That cut must be out of its mind. Yeah. Hmm. A bit, bit like the uh, the cat in this movie, G-Spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's what the cat's yeah, called. That's true. what the cat's called, Ben. And it's a lovely throwaway detail. Yeah. I can't imagine that the original H.P. Lovecraft story has a cat called G-Spot in it. You know, I'm still reading think... it, but I haven't I haven't <laughs> yeah. gone to that part yet. Uh, no. Knowing what we know about H.P. Lovecraft, I don't think he knew what the G-Spot was. <laughs> I, th- I think we can be quite sure of that. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Because the weird thing about H.P. Lovecraft is he wrote some great <laughs> horror stories, but he was an absolute trash can dumpster fire of a human being. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the, the weird the wor- thing, the, one the of worst the many person. weird things. Yeah, he was, <laughs> yeah. he was one of the He worst. was pretty, pretty bad. He was not be. great. But, but uh, Richard Stanley says that th- this film, and then he's, he's planning a trilogy now of Lovecraft films. I'm banging cool. for it. Here, here for it. He's writing the second one based on the Dunwich horror at the moment, uh, which is set a few years after this one. Sorry to jump ahead, but that's what's happening. And he says, uh, he's upfront about how much he despises Lovecraft as a person. Mm. And he says what he wants to do with these films is sort of have an argument with him and counter some of that misogyny and racism mm. by... The, apparently the uh, the daughter character in this film is not in the original no. story. So it's three sons. Know. Yeah. And, you know, he has a black guy as the voice of Lovecraft. Craft, mm. which is a real fuck you to him because apparently he was a hideous racist. A massive racist, mm. yeah. yeah. Where, how did that manifest itself? What do we know that from? Unpublished poems, including one called On the Creation of N-Words. Right. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, yeah. And it was in Ooh. a lot of his work, yeah. Yeah, it's problem. Yeah, it's interesting. The guy himself is problematic. and then, But I, when I first read Lovecraft, I was not aware of this at all I just you know knew him as this guy who was who was uh, worshipped and deified almost by by other horror writers as mm. the guy who essentially invented a lot of cosmic horror um, yeah. and then you read a little bit more about the man himself and then you have that separate do I separate the art of the artist conversation and I guess we are because here we are talking about which I think is a pretty damn good movie. Mm, I do too. Based on, but it's on interesting that from what I just said, it's, Richard Stanley isn't just separating the art from the artist; he's sort of challenging it as yeah. well with yeah. what he's doing. But and, for, and according to him, not only was Lovecraft horribly sexist and um, misogynistic and racist, but just also generally anti-Semitic. Was he? Yeah, right, don't forget okay. that. Nope, that's bingo. <laughs> right. <laughs> but also, apparently, he was just generally misanthropic. He mm. hated. He oh, bingo, bingo. <laughs> bingo. He didn't like people, which yeah. is why. Uh, his the human characters are very underserved in the mm. way that they're written, <laughs> and, I mean, yeah. and they all die. Yeah, I, th- there's very little in the way of character in a lot of his stories. What 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 is what is there is just effective use of language, I think, mm. and and you know just really like these. He keeps calling it a blasted Heath, which yeah. is actually not what we see in the film at all. It's not Heath, mm. but um, but you know just really effective kind of. Um, phrases, phrases that that kind of crop yeah. up again and again, and yeah. and that is what works. And it's not the characters, which, quite frankly, is true of a lot of early sci-fi as well. Yeah, I mean, some of the Isaac Asimov and and Arthur C. Clarke stories, mm. their, their humans are pretty bad, Thin. functional. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're just there and their to... women are not even that. You know, so. Well, Richard Stanley said he did a lot of work with this script, which he co-wrote with a, um, a writer called Scarlett Amaris. He did a lot of work to make the characters sympathetic and to have us invest in what happens mm. because in the story they're not sympathetic at all. They're barely characters in the first place. Mm. And so he he injected a lot of his own life experience and people he knew and his mother into this film. And apparently on set he was encouraging his actors to do the same and think about, well, you know, what would this be like if it was your family, if this was your kids? Wow. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, just very very quickly going back to Lovecraft as as a writer before we get into the film itself, he 
I, I think there are two interesting things about Lovecraft. He's not great in character, but he is great in atmosphere. Mm. And he's great on conjuring the sense of, of dread. And I think this film has that nicely in spades as well. Yeah. Uh, but you say he's great with language, and he is. He's a, he, he was a, a fantastic writer. Mm. But one of the things that always annoys me about Lovecraft, and it crops up over and over again, is the way that he just kind of he uses a get-out-of-jail-free card, which is, I can't describe what I saw that day, because yeah. it would simply <laughs> drive you insane. Yeah. It was beyond the limits of human perception. Uh, and it's all I'm going to say. Do you know what's interesting? In terms of describing the colour, which he totally doesn't in the story, and, and obviously what we see in the film is kind of pink. Yeah. <laughs> essentially it's actually almost like that you know the the Fuchsia. people you know the people who invented the pinkest pink right to get it you know Anish Kapoor the artist um, trademarked uh. Vanta black so he's the only one who's allowed to to paint with the blackest wow. black right <laughs> so so these other artists as a fuck you to him uh-huh. created the pinkest possible pink and it's on sale to everyone in the world except Anish Kapoor how do you stop him from buying that uh, you you have to sign a contract when you buy the pinkest pink apparently. Anyway, so that's the whole thing. But um, <laughs> but color is interesting because like uh, Terry Pratchett also has an imaginary color, octarine, which crops up in the Discworld books. It's literally right. the color of magic, and it's described as I think a greenishy, orangey purple. <laughs> um, and then he and Neil Gaiman had ultra black, I think, in Good Omens. Which is described as the color where if you if you want to see ultra back, what you have to do is run straight at a brick wall and slam into it head first. And the color you see behind your eyes just before you die, that's ultra black. So so there are ways of describing colors that don't exist, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we just he's like, I can't be arsed. Yeah. He I just goes be beyond the mind of man. Yes. But that's yeah. the point of what he's doing as well, isn't it? Is that this stuff is incomprehensible and it's bigger than us and it makes us and it makes us feel small and insignificant. Mm. And which I, is which is why it's been difficult, I think, by and large, to adapt Lovecraft for the big screen. Because he tries he conjures up on the page, in your mind's eye, all these incredible horrors, these yeah. Leviathans, Cthulhu, what the old gods, whatever it is. And then mm. it's just a whole bunch of tentacles. It, yeah. And it's really difficult to do that. Even even yeah, so which is why I think the most successful Lovecraft adaptation still is Stuart Gordon's Reanimator mm. from 1985 because that basically just went fuck it gore lots of gore flying kidneys all that sort of stuff and I like that this one basically just went fuck it it's pink yeah it's pink but it's also pink. this is I think the first one to really kind of successfully go for that trippiness mm-hmm. and actually tackle this on a cosmic scale the, the, the vision that Lavinia imparts to Ward at the end of the movie I thought, oh, this is pretty cool, and I wish it wasn't. I wish the effects were better. I wish it didn't look like a screensaver for the Amiga. I wish, you know what I mean. I wish that something because when Guillermo del Toro was trying to make out the Mountains of Madness, mm. that's the sort of scale, the sort of budget that you know you could bring to bear on a on a Lovecraft movie. Yeah, I liked the effects in this though because there's something kind of scary in that retro feel. Yeah, there is. It's it's a little bit the thingy. Yeah, uh, obviously, obviously at certain times with you know, inside out sort of people yeah. and alpacas. Yeah. Um, but uh, but also just generally it's it there's there's that feel of it being kind of handmade and, and, and handcrafted. And also the kind of claustrophobia of that. Mm-hmm. They are out of town is on this farm, but there is also the it's it does what the thing does as well, which is that creeping sense of both claustrophobia and the risk of contagion spreading outwards from this yeah. from this isolated spot. Mm. Helen by the way has just sent me uh, 
You just show me the uh, the the what's it called? The ultra pink? What's it called? Uh, it's pinkest pink. I pinkest guess, pink. Right? And it says, uh, note by adding this product to your cart, you confirm that you are not Anish Kapoor. You are in no way affiliated to Anish Kapoor. You are not purchasing this item on behalf of Anish Kapoor or an associate of Anish Kapoor. Wow. To the best of your knowledge, information and belief, this paint will not make its way into the hands of Anish Kapoor. Uh, I'm going to buy some afterwards and then just <laughs> drive around taunting Anish Kapoor with it. Uh, hashtag share the black. Is who, the is, who is a very good artist and whose work I do like. But yeah, Vanta Black being exclusive to one artist does seem a bit ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> there are a lot of cool effects in this film, I think. Mm. And I do, however they were done, I think it was just done by one or two people somewhere they sent it. Because he was saying um, that he tried to do as much in camera as possible. Mm. Mm. But I think at one point he gave up and handed it over to some VFX people. Yeah, but it, it was a, a short list of VFX artists, if I remember the credits correctly. Yeah, I think it's a small outfit. Yeah. But Ben, you and I were talking earlier today, there's there's that bit where Nick Cage is, you know, they're fighting in, in, the, in the house at the end. And there's that amazing warping dragging effect mm. where it looks like the, the screen is actually being pulled something. I can't recall seeing that before quite look, like that looked a bit like um, back in the Windows XP days where it used to crash and then as you try and drag the window yeah. around the screen it would just sort of repeat smear. and repeat and leave a big yeah. old smear on your screen yeah. oh that was cool Yeah, mm. I mean bad obviously <laughs> gone wrong uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the effects in this. Yeah. I thought they were fantastic. Whether it was the uh, alpacas being reduced, to, you know, which is very thingy, of course, mm-hmm. uh, to you know so much mulch, uh, or Jolie Richardson fusing with her youngest son. Oh, who that saw that coming? That Jeez. made me feel so sick. It made, yeah. oh, I, I hated that in the way that the film. Mm. I think wanted me to hate it, but it made me feel really horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it was super, super Grim. disturbing. Super and interesting. Like it was a, a very much an escalation on the book, which is basically the the old you know wife goes mad and you lock her in the attic thing, yeah. and then and then one of the sons goes mad and is locked in a different attic room. You know, this like just how many, this how many just attic rooms do you have? This just uh, kind of compressed that whole time frame. So is it is is what happens in the film new in terms of those two fusing? The fusing, yes, I believe so. Right, because Richard Stanley said some amazing stuff about that in the interview. He said that really boils down to the fear of his mum never wanting him to be free of her and not letting him go. Way psychological. But the apocalypse. Apocalypse. There is a um, a track on the score on the soundtrack called Apocalypse. Amazing. All that <laughs> amazing. moment, amazing. which is amazing. <laughs> Just. Do these score titles, like being massive puns, does that kind of go back to Michael Giacchino? Has he kind of popularised that in the modern era? I, he might have done. I, I, this might just be the one pun. I mean, it's an amazing Maybe it is. It's an amazing it is an amazing word. pun, yeah. No, I think uh, John Williams did it on the soundtrack of The Phantom Menace. He made an explicit reference to the fact that uh, Qui-Gon Jim was a eunuch with the... Uh, is no the, the title friends, the title, the title track, <laughs> Qui Gon's No Bell End. Yes, oh, right. Oh boy, have I read that wrong? I think you might have read that. Oh wrong. dear. Yeah. Oh well. But actually, I mean, it's a better reading because the other reading would be a massive spoiler. John it would be a massive so. spoiler. It'd be like Qui Gon's Noble End. What? Well, he's not going to die in this movie. By the way, this is a Phantom Menace spoiler special now <laughs> as well. Um, but I yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the, the impact of the family and, uh, and, and broadening the characters and deepening the characters and starting and ending, actually. Did we end? No, starting, mostly ending, but starting with Lavinia, who's mm-hmm. the first mm. character we see. And I, when I was watching the movie, I was like, is there a reading of this movie where, because she's... Oh, she's dabbling in, in magic and she's a Wiccan and yeah. and she's you know it's a horror film and she's a teenage girl and she's she's growing up and 
you sometimes there's a there's a, a a thread that runs through horror films that maybe like Carrie, for example, as you mm-hmm. as you hit puberty, that maybe your your psychic powers are beginning to run amok a little bit. Is there a sense in this movie that maybe that's why the meteorite is drawn to her, and maybe that a lot of this is stemming from oh her? Oh my this god! Maybe blame why it on the woman. I'm not blaming it on the woman. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there for you guys. Yes, I'm totally blaming it on the woman. It's all her fault. Wow. Aliens invade and it's still a woman's fault. Well, she's got purple in her hair right away. So I'm just wondering if that is Mm. maybe all stemming a little bit psychologically from her. Whoa. She's she's doing that to cure her mother of cancer, isn't she? Mm -hmm. That's a whole... That's a whole thing, and I guess that wasn't in the original story as well. And wow, did that backfire! Yeah, that did. The the growth went out of control. (laughs) Terrible side effects. Mm. Yeah, do not approve on the FDA. No Um, no one agrees with me on that one. That's totally fine. No, just a a theory. I thought it was just this. uh, It was really weird because you would expect that to matter in a horror movie. If somebody's engaging in witchcraft in Mm. a horror movie, it usually means the devil's going to ride in. And I don't think. But maybe it did, Helena. I'm saying. Maybe it did. But also it mm. drops the whole witchiness, doesn't it? I mean, like immediately. Yeah, yeah, that's the first and last time we see her doing any witchy stuff, isn't it? Well, no, she, she cuts m- all mutilates herself. And... She, uh, she has a whole sequence where she mutilates mm. herself. Is that witchy stuff or is that alien intervention? I think that's witchy stuff. She's trying. She's she's got Isn't some she sort of. She's trying to carve she, yeah, protective almost, sigils into uh, herself. Yeah. she's almost got this uh, okay. almost a Ouija board, or I don't know. I'm not into witchy stuff. Um, cauldron. She's not grot bags, but <laughs> you know, if, if those are protective symbols, again, she is a terrible <laughs> oh witch. None of her spells are successful. <laughs> It was it was a bad bad move. Oh my god! The meteorite lands and she goes. There's somebody at the door. There's somebody at the again hey. for our American listeners. Pink uh, windmill. Do Google it. Pink windmill. Oh my god! This whole film is a metaphor for, for Rod Holland. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wait, I'm confused. No, but I. It is actually. It's a. <laughs> it's kind of a fun idea that you know aliens turn up and you try to use magic against them, but magic still doesn't exist. So you just. Die. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of quite because like that. It's they're aliens quite funny. and yeah. they, they give a shit that you can use magic. Yeah. Or it'd be like, I don't know, you know, aliens exist, so you run to SETI and start sending out, or sorry, magic exists, so you run to SETI and start, you know, sending out messages to try and get the aliens to come and get you. Mm. And, you know, it, yep. it doesn't work because the aliens work. don't exist in that sense. I don't know. I yeah. just think it's fun. It's it's fun. It's fun to watch people die. Is that what you're saying, Helen? Wait, no, I just mean it's fun to words. mix. It's fun to mix sci-fi and fantasy, I guess. It is. It is. Uh, and of course, the aliens, they just, they generally don't give a shit. Well, exactly. Um, They're like honey badgers. They really are. They really are. Uh, this film, one of the things it does in, in broadening the characters is it actually gives Nick Cage something to do. And uh, I really like him in this film. I really like the fact, I like Julie Richardson as well. I like the relationship they have mm. at the beginning where there's a, a sense of, there's a real pain sweetness. and trying to yeah and trying to reestablish a connection, mm. a physical connection between the two of them. Uh, it's a very interesting and bold move with the mastectomy. I thought as well. What do you think Stanley was going for with with that with that approach to that character? Well, his mum had cancer for ten years, and he he's said that this film is a mourning process for him. Mm. So I think he was I think he was laying a lot to rest there. But the, yeah, you're right. That's real. I think there's genuine considering where the film ends up, which is batshit and ridiculous um, it, there's real sincerity to that early mm. stuff isn't there you you really go for it, it yeah it did remind me a bit of Mandy in that sense of, of recent Nicolas Cage films that go on full on cage rage madness but actually at the core of it has 
some pretty heavy sort of grief and familial mm-hmm. um, m- kind of meat to the drama, um, but then inevitably goes off into Cuckoo. all sorts of craziness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was obviously, it was Mandy that brought Nick Cage onto this project because it's Elijah Wood's SpectreVision production company. So mm. it's interesting to, to see that sort of connective tissue mm. Spreading across. Like a colour out of space. <gasps> like a wheel within a wheel. Like two <laughs> bodies fused together. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's you've brought the song to a halt now, But you've now, brought ben, it back but, to windmills, yeah. though. He has brought it back oh to windmills. Oh, my God. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but yeah, Cage, Cage and uh, Julie Richardson are terrific yeah. in this film. But uh, also, what it, what it does is, because uh, I, I figured having read the short story years and years ago, uh, and having read a lot of Lovecraft, and a lot of Lovecraft doesn't end well. And I knew it was probably not going to end well for any of the characters. Uh, also, by the way, we should mention that this film's been made before, that this mm. story's been adapted before. So if anyone remembers, I'm struggling to remember this, uh, but uh, a shit horror film, because I remember it being shit, from the 1980s called The Curse, directed by David Keith. Not Keith David from <laughs> The Thing, but David Keith, uh, which adapts this story pretty Faithfully as well, I think, and pretty schlockily. I remember things like The Gate from the 1980s, uh, but I don't remember The the Curse. So if anyone does remember The Curse, Mm. and you can write in and tell us. I I was reading up on that today, and Will Wheaton was in it, and I was into him in the 1980s. Will Wheaton! So I'm surprised I haven't seen it, actually. That's right, Will Wheaton! Will Wheaton! Actually, which is not because... That kind of ends kind of happily for his character as well, or at least he gets out. Uh, if I rem- uh, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, that's right, he does. Um, my God, this is now a curse border special as well. Uh, <laughs> but this movie, I figure, was going to be pretty true and faithful. And Richard Stanley, I, I from his previous films, has got a pretty dark worldview, mm. and so I, I thought it was going to end badly. And so I really didn't like the fact that I was liking the characters as much as I was, and uh, that it was Cage on normal Cage form for the mm. first half of the movie anyway even even something like his little meltdown when he's watching himself on TV and he's like oh fuck did no one tell me to have a comb I mean oh my god and the, the TV's painting him out to be some sort of drunk as well <laughs> yeah just really sweet and lovely and, and then funny. you just know the horror that's going to come yeah even when he's aggressively milking alpacas <laughs> that's a heck of a technique <laughs> Um, it's on the wrist. In, in terms of like other adaptations of this as well, I think, feel like even beyond literal adaptations, the sort of um, the impact that this story will have had. It, as somebody who's not read the original story, it reminded me a lot of Annihilation. Mm-hmm. That sense of something mm-hmm. intergalactic again, yeah. and, and that yeah, then is mutating the natural landscape and yeah. the sort of weird bear creature thing in that compared to the alpacas here. And they both had the weird edge of rainbowness also. Yes, yeah, the sort of like shimmery mm. colour sort of situation. And even as well, I found until it really kicked into overdrive in the last half hour, um, I found quite a lot of it weirdly Spielbergy. Like, sort of a bit poltergeist. There was lots of stuff of, of the little boy wandering around the house at night while the static mm. on the TV is, mm-hmm. is pulsing with purple. Yeah. Um, lots of shots with, like, nice lens flare and stuff in the in the late night stuff. And mm. when the um, grounds outside the house as well are covered in the pink flowers, like the Spielberg War of the Worlds, where all the sort of weird red... The red uh, moss. Sort mm. of, yeah, moss, mm. weed mm. stuff starts to grow. Um 
sort of all those things were coming to mind while while I was watching it. But that's about lulling you into a false sense of security, isn't it? It's like, oh, this feels quite Spielbergy and the kid, and we like the kid, and mm-hmm. the kid has a connection with the thing. We've seen this movie before a hundred times. This is not going to end. Oh my God, he's fused with his mother on yeah. a molecular level. <laughs> yeah. He appears to be somewhere in her back. I, it's hard to tell. Oh, oh my God. I wasn't expecting that. That doesn't happen in Amblin movies. And there's also that great bit where where that creature runs across the room and it's stop motion, right? There's a, yeah. t- a, two, well, a second or two where it'll stop motion. That's tremendous, that creature. Yeah, isn't? and just the fact that you're seeing something like that that isn't CGI, which probably took a few weeks to make or something, It's uh, there's something scary about mm. stop motion when it's used like that. Yeah, mm. and I fully applaud as well Julie Richardson. Uh, for being a, a trooper and because I imagine she went through a lot of makeup as well especially for the early early stages of it at least and uh, I applaud her commitment to the horror genre this mm. yeah seriously an Jeez. event horizon bingo bingo <laughs> it all comes back to event horizon it always comes back to event horizon the main thing I remembered her from was the live action 101 Dalmatians and get this out. was very different get out <laughs> this was extremely extremely different 101 alpacas <laughs> <laughs> oh my god they're all fusing together oh god oh no there's so many <laughs> how many spots is that who knows oh Ben you're so pure Ben Travis must be protected at all costs <laughs> where were Pongo and Perdita <laughs> they're dead they've gone to a very special farm they've been fused with, with a well their Don't spots go in the have well. turned purple all dogs go to space <laughs> uh, let's talk about Cage well, what, what, do we, what do we make of him in this movie it's everything you'd want isn't it yeah I've had it with your drama Lavinia <laughs> I think it was my favourite line reading the car isn't happening is my favourite line oh that's a good alpacas they're the animal of the future anytime he said the word alpaca I was pretty much happy I thought he was great yeah he's tremendous just the way that he he's I love it when he's fully engaged there was a, there was a period where he was just kind of I, I thought a little bit maudlin and not sleepwalking his way through movies necessarily, but you know, not not infesting him with the same crazy Nick Cage energy that that mm. made him what he is. I, I think he's tremendous. You know, I, there's a there's a danger that he might be damaging his legacy somewhat by taking all these movies that we know he has to take a lot of movies because of his financial situation in real life. But but this is his status, isn't it? This is him. But, but by doing it, he's locked into this this kind of run mm. of yeah. movies like this and like Mandy and like even something oh, like, the, like The Trust where he's just, or even Kick-Ass where you, yeah. know, you can sense he's having fun yeah. and he's, he's infested in being yeah. a, a, a wackasoid actor again. But it, it does remind me of the Community episode where Abed takes a class <laughs> called Nick Cage, Good or Bad, and everyone warns him not to, that this will drive him mad. <laughs> but he, he's like there has to be an answer he has to be either good or bad and it indeed does drive him bad because there isn't a right answer I don't think there's not I think he can be great I think that's as close as we can get I think the material needs to to fit around him for yes him to be good. I think that's right I think that's it's right. kind of weird because there's an artificiality to it because he is such a theatrical actor that sometimes like especially like Lavinia comes home for the first time and he's on the porch being all lovey lovey daddy and he's like hey honey your mother shouldn't see you doing this and you're going this is a bit weird <laughs> and he's wearing a cardigan and he's wearing a cardigan <laughs> you know 
he is supposed to be normal in the first half of this film, yeah. and you don't quite <laughs> buy there's it. A slight, there's a slight remove. So there. why aren't we blaming him for attracting the alien to he's him? He's not casting spells. All well, he's trying to do is who you says know, aliens respond to spells? Maybe they respond to Nicolas Cage. Well, and his uh, sexual appetites. No, he's just he's just air of you know himness. Cageness. <laughs> yeah, they're just fans. Yeah. <laughs> they just arrive and go. I, I, I have to say, I love your work. I just, I mean, Moonstruck. Oh my god, City of Angels. <laughs> eh, <laughs> but the rest of it, pretty damn good. Wow, you can't even imagine. You can imagine all sorts of eldritch creatures, but not one that loves City of Angels. No one loves City of Angels, Helen. Uh, yes, so City of Angels uh, is below this. If we did a Nick Cage ranking, oh my god, we should do a Nick Cage ranking. Yes. Oh my god! And instead would, of numbers, would, it's all question marks. <laughs> <laughs> Who would, knows? Would, would you rank the films or the performances? How would that work? Exactly? It's always tricky when we do actors. Uh, so I tend to rank the films. Okay. And then performances can sometimes be a byproduct. But then it's tricky. Like, what do you do with cameos? Mm. Oh, it's so tricky. Anyway, Red Rock West number eight. Uh, that's. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to talk about from this? Uh, I noticed there was a cheeky Marlon Brando cameo. Yes, finally. Because so obviously Brando is in The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, Richard Stanley was given Marlon Brando on that film and was quite overwhelmed by it, but then got really close to him and went round to his house and got drunk on tequila with him. And Brando loved Richard Stanley, apparently. Um, but then um, Richard Stanley was booted off that film and Marlon Brando did all his crazy shit and demanded <laughs> a little person in it, which is where Mike Myers got many me from. And all that business. Um, so I think he said that Marlon Brando being on the TV in this film uh, was his way of finally getting Marlon Brando into one of his films. What's the film? I, I could. It's One Eye it. Jacks. That's One Eye Jacks. Yeah. That's the one oh, he directed. Cool. Yes, Marlon Brando. Yeah, Brando. Yeah, that is right. Yeah. Uh, wasn't that uh, Kubrick was going to direct that one? Right? Isn't that the one Kubrick was going to do? And then Brando took over. I think so. But anyway, yeah. But apparently, the other reason for that being in this film is that it was public domain, so they didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> Sounds right. right. Sounds right. That's one thing I liked about the film is how, how you know, because you think these low-budget, slocky films, Richard Stanley coming back to direct them after years away. Mm. As we all know, Dust Devil was his last movie. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought it might be a little bit more cheap and cheerful, a little bit more greasy strangler perhaps, but no, it's actually really well made. Yeah, it's a proper film. Yeah, yeah, all the effects hold up. I think there's a couple of dodgy ones towards the end, but that, that's fine. Even the slightly sort of, yeah, the, the slightly more out there bits of special effects even the slightly off looking sort of grasshopper with wings mm, thingy yeah. the fact Mantis. that it does look a bit fakey almost adds to the weird cosmic mm. I like it wibbliness yeah. of it it's got a sort of fabric to it hasn't yeah. it cosmic wibbliness is a great yeah. phrase yeah. and this um, I think the score is really I've been listening to the mm. score isolated quite a lot and it's um, yeah. it's really quite disturbing by Colin Stetson he did Hereditary as well I was going to say, because that sounded like a made-up name to me. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> Colin Stetson. <laughs> he, d- he did hereditary. He, did. he does okay. exist. He's a real person who does exist. We've had quite a year for disturbing scores. If you haven't heard Little Joe as well, that's super oh, disturbing haven't. score. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a trend, I'm saying. Off minor keys and all that scary stuff. Scary, scary, scary. stuff. Uh, anything else you want to talk about from this movie? What's your favourite bit? What's your least favourite bit? What did you like? What did you not like? Got three minutes. Alpaca lips. Mm. Yeah, it's quite alpacas. disgusting, isn't it? It's, it's really gross. Quite horrific seeing alpacas explode, mm. and they get fused as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they sort of melt. They're sort of almost basically just skeletons in a big lump of flesh. 
uh, when he goes down and blasts them all. Mm. Uh, yeah, for me, the 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 worst thing was was the mum and the boy fusing together. Yeah, for sure. It was like really it's, them both like crying. It was the way they were both wailing <laughs> and like sort of pulsing purple. And then it cuts round to it. There's another angle of the front of the mum. And her outsides, her insides are sort of outsides and it's all bubbly and, yeah. Yeah, I just, no. yeah. Ooh. I've got to say, the last 15, 20 minutes in general, I thought was a real thrill. I don't think you get to see that in mainstream. I mean, if you would call this mainstream cinema, I don't even know. But you don't get to see it very often, the mm. genuine sense of altered states and a psychedelia that mm. actually has some sort of physical effect on you. You don't I, see it very often. I really liked the sequence where the uh, reward, who I think... Could have done with more character development because ultimately he's who we as the audience he's are, a bit of a are hanging our hats yeah. on. He absolutely is. Uh, where Ward and the sheriff go to see Tommy Chong and he's just been desiccated and yeah. it's really creepy and his tape is playing and his tape yeah. is predicting basically the end of the world and it's you know it's describing in a way you know the the, the the insidious poisoning of the environment which is something that this movie is very very much about. Yeah, in was- a really interesting way I was wondering if it was really wise to you know flood this particular valley um, for a dam given that we know it's in the water yeah that seemed ominous Get given rid. the end of the movie that's a very very good point mm-hmm. so so where do we think it's going next is the Dunwich horror like is that is that a bigger thing because I, I quite liked how expansive this got at the end with the whole sky opening up and all the colour shooting up into the sky it felt like this was the beginnings of something Bigger. Do we know much about what this what this next one? I don't know. Have, be? You, have either of you two read that story? I've read it, but I can't remember years much years about ago, it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But I imagine if it's made, it's made by Spectavision. This film, Elijah Wood's company, and I, I imagine it's not going to suddenly become a twenty million dollar epic. So mm-hmm. you would hope that it would have a similar sort of feel and texture to it, because that was yeah. what was effective about it. I think. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, certainly. I know. So the end of this story. You know, the color does shoot up back up in space, but leaves a bit of itself behind. So it's right. a kind of a similar thing. So I've, I feel like mm. there's that same idea here of like a seed of something mm. that can still. With the, the weird, creepy insect at the <laughs> end. And uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think this by and large is a, a terrific movie. It has some some ups and some downs, but it's great to see a movie, as Alex said, that goes absolutely gonzo for this. And uh, yeah. and uh, I can't believe I, I, they cast Tony, Tommy Chong as a, as a stoner. That's like <laughs> awful. <laughs> Method. Yeah. He's been he's been in training all his life, but it's it's one of those movies that feels because of the poison of the environment, poison of the water. It feels really timely, mm. and it occurred to me that this is a movie that could also legitimately be called Dark Waters, yeah. and <laughs> could also legitimately be called Parasite. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, Whoa. yeah. And on that mind-blowing note, <laughs> watch for this winning Best Picture next year. <laughs> can you imagine? I think it's already ineligible. I think it was already qualified last year. But anyway, can you imagine next year you were on the Oscar podcast? And That'd be going, amazing. You're going, Colorado Space will win. I'll go, yes, never please. wins. <laughs> no film in which Nick Cage shoots an alpaca has ever won Best Picture. Many alpacas. That's horrible. You actually feel his pain when he's doing that. Mm. It's like putting your dog down, isn't it? Yeah. He's shooting his pets. They just have to be fused alpacas. And also, like, when the horse turned up and she was like, it's fine, we can escape by horseback, I was a bit like, nah. <laughs> Don't get fused on the horse. Nah, it's not going to work. That's one of the things about it, the way that it kind of goes full Evil Dead 2 at the, way, at the end. And I'm aware other horror movies are available, but uh, in the, the forest comes alive and tries to keep them there and keep them contained. Because it's not like The Thing, in a way, when the, when the shit hits a fan in The Thing, there is literally nowhere they can go. Mm. They are stuck <laughs> They are stuck there with that thing, literally. And here it's like, well, you could just 
just walk down the town, down the road, surely, and get the get the sheriff. It's a couple of miles, but you could do it. But it slowly, it just about covers that that potential yeah, plot hole yeah, off. I think definitely. even that whole sense, which comes quite early in the film, of time warping, mm-hmm. and you don't know it was day a minute ago, and now it's night. Just even them talking about it gave me the creeps a little bit. Yeah, mm. they do a lot with very little in this film. I think that yeah. wasn't that sounded worse than it is. There's a lot in this. <laughs> <laughs> but they also do a lot with yeah, yeah. with small things with a lot. All yeah. right. Uh, well, that is it for our Colour Out of Space spoiler special. Hope you enjoyed it and the interview with Richard Stanley, uh, who is welcome back in the pod booth anytime for a flat purple. Our next spoiler special after that will be Onward with director Dan Scanlon and producer Corey Ray. And then after that, The Invisible Man with writer-director Lee Wanell and producer Jason Blum. And of course, the regular podcast is available every single Friday as well. Do like, subscribe and download. But until then, until we meet again, until a auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Alpacas. <laughs> It'll toodaloo this time. Toodaloo. Toodaloo, alpacas. It's goodbye from Ben Travis. The dream you dream together is reality. What's that? <laughs> that was one of the lines I wrote down that I was like, I don't know what this means, but maybe it means something. Wow. Maybe wow. I don't know what this means, but it'll be a good way to finish a podcast. <laughs> I've, I've got written down, the dream you dream together is reality. I've had it with your drama, Lavinia, and maggot dick. <laughs> Such 80s insults in this Well, one. Alex, you're left with Mike a dick. How do you feel about that? In what sense? <laughs> Life imitating art once again. Or is it the way around? I'll Who take knows? a bucket of maggot dicks. <laughs> it's a goodbye from Alex Godfrey. Alpacalypse Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to drink alpaca milk straight from the source. Mmm, they really are the animal of the future. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>